Tune in every Tuesday to the Learning with Lowell podcast with me, your host, Lowell, to hear world-class scientists, startup founders, CEOs, and authors, people who you wouldn't normally hear about but are making huge waves all the same. You'll understand them and their work by hearing their passion, laughter, advice, and hearing them, the experts, break down what they're working on so that you can learn, push the boundaries of your knowledge, and understanding. Three quick ways to show your support and get unique, exclusive, and fun content is by checking out learningwithlowell.com website, our Patreon page. Even if it's just a buck, it keeps us advertisement-free, and subscribing. Today, we are joined with David Nero, CEO of Sonovex, Forbes' 30 Under 30, located in Baltimore, Maryland. As I said, he is the CEO of Sonovex. He is a venture partner at FundRx. He is an external advisory board member for the Center for Bioengineering Innovation and Design at John Hopkins University. He's also co-founded and a CEO of Mano Mano Inc. I mean, quite frankly, this guy does a lot. In this episode, we get a bit into his life, clinical processing, developing ultrasound technologies, that type of thing. It's a very interesting episode, and I hope you all enjoy it. Thank you for joining me today. So you're, the, you're a CEO, you're a venture partner, you're an external advisory board member, and you're a co-founder of a, another company that you run more or less in parallel. I'm curious how you like how you allocate time, because that sounds really impressive. Yeah, I mean, Sonovex is certainly my day job where I spend the vast majority of my time, but all of the different positions are sort of aligned with my main interest of sort of the early stage technology space for um, devices that help people that, um, you know, require uh, various different perspectives uh, at the early stage. And, you know, not all of these positions require weekly or or, um, daily uh, effort to be able to do successfully, for example, you know, being on advisory boards or looking at potential new deals at uh, a company or uh, sort of one-off type of tasks. And I'm, I'm able to really use those experiences to better perform at, uh, you know, the positions where I'm spending most of my time, which is, uh, you know, running Sonovex and, and figuring out new opportunities for how to grow the company and uh, develop new technologies. Well, would you say then it's it's really like the big two things you do are, you know, Sonovex and M- Mano Mano in a, like in a typical week? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, the, the majority of my time goes towards Sonovex. I've been able to uh, put Mano Mano mostly on autopilot um, and automate sort of the digital marketing and, and fulfillment side of things. And, um, you know, there, there are certainly times when I'm, I spend a couple hours here and there uh, working on, on various items, but I've been able to either delegate or automate most of, of that, those business operations. Sonovex, since it's in a much earlier stage and is um, you know a, a much bigger operation, requires a, a lot more focus and attention uh, every every day, whereas I can really uh, just sort of leave Mono Mono to run on its own and, and pop in on a you know every couple day basis to make sure things are going smoothly. So kind of like a like a mini Elon Musk because he does a lot of stuff too. I don't know if you follow that guy. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, it's, it's a little bit different. He's running what three different public companies at, at one time. I, I think it's a, a slight difference, but I, I appreciate the comparison. Mm-hmm. Well, you get there. <laughs> Something to shoot for. <laughs> one day. How do you gain the skills to do stuff like this? To to be a leader versus just perhaps a scientist? Is it just a lot of trial and error with good mentorship? You know, pushing you along. Yeah. Or, yeah. I think you hit it on the head. I mean, it's it's trial and error. I mean, you're not going to learn anything unless you you, you try try to do it, um, knowing that, you know, there are, uh, you know, your educational background or what you've learned first is not limiting in the things you're able to do. So pushing yourself to gain exposure and push yourself out of your comfort zone uh, is sort of the first key. And then you find that once you start 
trying new things, it's, uh, you know, a lot of these other fields are not as complex as they may seem from the outside. So maybe it's the jargon or maybe it's, you know, degrees that you see people are, are getting that um, make a, a given field seem like it's unattainable. But once you um, either self-teach or if you talk to people with, you know, deep expertise in that field, you realize, you know, you can start picking up those skills on your own and, and finding uh, good mentors, like you said, is absolutely key to making sure that you're not, you know, wasting time and, and can, um, that learning in an efficient manner. So I'd say, you know, it's a, it's a matter of taking those risks and pushing yourself into new uh, facets of uh, life and education, but also finding people that can help guide you in the right direction that you can look up to that aren't going to um, steer you in the wrong direction. Have you, have you by chance watched the TV show, um, not Leftovers, that's a different one, the Westworld? A couple episodes. I'm, I'm not a big TV guy, I must admit. So uh, I, I got, I think, maybe four episodes in around Christmas time last year, but I wasn't able to keep it going. All right, well, my shot in the dark, I'm making a reference to make this an easier question to ask. But basically, in, in, that, in that TV show, there's these robots, and they all have primal memories that kind of anchor them into their narrative. So... Which makes me always wonder, like, what are people's primary primary memory that kind of keeps them doing what they're doing? Like, what what is motivating you? Like, what is the thing inside you that, like, almost like Hamilton from the musical, maybe if you're familiar with that, where you just keep going and you keep building and you keep trying to build the world you want to see versus just accepting the world it was as what it is. Is is there something, or are you just you've never considered anything else? I think there are two things. Um, you know, one one thing is that some people are just natively motivated to to move things forward and, and try to accomplish things and and that sort of is what got me started but i think what really makes it that much more exciting and, and meaningful for me is that the the first experience i had with sort of design and, and entrepreneurship um, came from you know, the first iteration of the mono mono trike that we built and um, once we had our first cohort of stroke survivors uh, try the trike and and see how it was able to basically give them that sort of freedom and ability to exercise, whereas they you know, were either using a walker or a wheelchair previously was one of the most rewarding things that, that I've experienced. And seeing how relatively simple innovations or design work can make a big impact on so many different people is uh, probably at the root of, of the motivation to, to do this. And, and also, you know, in going from an idea to a business that's you know, creating new technology and, and getting to big milestones, each one of those small little steps towards your end goal is uh, incredibly rewarding and something that you don't really experience in many other sort of disciplines or, or types of, of jobs that I've experienced. And that type of satisfaction is something that uh, is really unparalleled and, and frankly just feels really good. So um, finding environments where you're in sort of high stakes, um, early stage environments where you're able to move the needle is just uh, an incredibly exciting place to be. It probably helps being the boss as well, especially if you believe in yourself, like to, to kind of be pushing the vision versus like pushing. You know, else's I, vision. I, I, I think that that gets overplayed in, in how important or exciting or rewarding it is. I mean, I think it honestly comes with a lot of additional worries and tasks and um, stresses that, that being part of a, a team, may not necessarily have. And, and I think what is the most rewarding is being in an interdisciplinary team with people way smarter than me working towards a common goal and being able to sort of stitch together, you know, clinical expertise with scientific expertise, with engineering expertise, with business expertise to actually make something happen as a cohesive unit. And it's, 
you know, with everybody's title or position is sort of meaningless in an early stage company and having just those different perspectives and, and skill sets is what really makes it exciting and, and being in a role that enables me to sort of stitch together those different uh, expertise areas uh, to, to actually make something happen is really the exciting part. Mm-hmm. We kind of touched on this, which was going to be my last personal question, which is like, what sucks? Like, you or like, what are you bad at? Because, you, you know, on paper, you have a lot of good things going for you, but I'm sure you suck at a lot of things. But like, is there anything that is not positive, positive that you like over time hope to overcome? Well, I'd say you asked what sucks, which is, I think, a little different than what yeah. not good at. Yeah. Um, that what, what sucks is very easy, easy to answer. I mean, there are, you know, dealing with things like legal and accounting and HR and, you know, all of the sort of day-to-day mundane things that are necessary to make sure that you're running a business in a compliant manner and have the appropriate staff to accomplish your goals is uh, not glamorous and um, something that you know, has to be taken care of and either requires close attention, a lot of time, and or, um, you know, close knowledge of, of how all of those different areas impact the rest of the business. So, I mean, th- those are the things that, you know, you, you hate spending your time on, but at least in the early days, you have to really make sure you line up appropriately or else there could be some pretty negative implications down the line. Um, you know, and I'd say, you know, we're getting, as you grow as an organization, you get to delegate more and more of those things. But at the early stages when they're you know, only a handful of people around you and, and those people might have more siloed domains of expertise. Um, somebody's got to make sure all that gets taken care of. And uh, hopefully that will not uh, be too distracting as we continue to grow the company. Mm-hmm. For Mono Mano and Sonovex, in, in Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, just to give a reference on wh- where this question comes from, he talks about how timing is incredibly critical. And I'm talking to a number of people that if, if certain disasters didn't happen, like their company wouldn't have existed. So I'm curious, like what made you think both of those things that you've built, like this was the right time for them? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a great question. I'm very familiar with the book and I, I like it a lot. I, I think that, um, you know, with, with both of the different companies, there was so much good timing that was just happenstance that made everything work out. Uh, you know, sure. You know, somebody had the idea, somebody decided to put in the work and funding ultimately came into the picture. But uh, the fact that certain people are in the same environment with the same goals is, uh, I don't want to call it fate necessarily, but somewhat random. Um, and in both, in both situations, I was very fortunate to be around people that had uh, similar aspirations, similar work ethics, and diverse you know, expertise um, to you know, say, listen, I, I really want to work with you to make this happen. Uh, so you know, I, I, in, uh, for Mano Mano, it was as an undergrad, I was able to be in an environment where there were a couple other students that were highly motivated that uh, really wanted to help people. And there was great support from the university, um, both, you know, in, in terms of mentorship and um, early on in, in funding materials and supplies and um, help sort of plug me into various connections within the, uh, you know, Rochester network. And, and that really helped things take off pretty quickly. Uh, very similarly, I mean, I had the chance to meet uh, you know, a, a very accomplished surgeon when I was in graduate school at, at Johns Hopkins and the two of us really clicked and were able to accomplish a lot in a very little amount of time. And then fast forward a couple of years, we were able to get the funding necessary to you know, grow a team, get a product through the FDA and, and start commercializing this technology that started off as just an idea. So I, I'd say it's, you know, like you said, being in the right place at the right time and, and not passing up on an opportunity. Um, because it, it might you know, seem like it might take a long time or, or be a lot of hard work. But if you can recognize that, you know, you're fortunate to be in, in, 
in an opportun in an opportune place, you know, seizing that opportunity and and making the most of it is um, sort of I, I'd say almost you know what you owe it to yourself because those opportunities don't come very frequently. And um, you know, if we didn't take that opportunity, none, none of this stuff would have ever uh, been created or developed, and uh, it would be you know, worse for everyone involved. Looking back, was there anything that like with your like heightened wisdom of having a, uh, some time removed, was there anything that in particular let you know like this was the right time other than those things that you listed, but I'm sure like in the moment there were things that you just couldn't know would work out be because of environmental factors or is there anything that looking back you could see were there that working behind the scenes that people listening could maybe pay attention to their own lives <laughs> other than, you know, go to a good school maybe. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, so there are, I think your question has a bunch of layers to it. I mean, there are you know, environmental factors, there are political factors, economic factors and, and personal factors. And I think what's most easy to really understand in this context and be cognizant of is, is the personal factor. So we, we were in a very great situation where um, I, I basically had what I considered nothing to lose at the time. I mean, I was early in my career and I, I said, listen, you know, we, there's this great idea that, that we've come up with. There's, a, you know, a seemingly very large opportunity here. Um, there's absolutely no stability. There's no guarantee any of this is going to work out. We have no funding lined up. Um, but if we don't, you know, give this a shot, you know, I'm, I'm going to be kicking myself for the rest of my life for it. And we said, listen, you know, I can give up, you know, a good salary at a, a firm and, you know, live a comfortable life to, to go take this risk. Um, and there was no better time in my life than, you know, in your early twenties to say, listen, I'm going to go for it and um, see what we can make of it. And, you know, not having a family commitments, not having um, a lot of bills at the time made it pretty easy for me to make that decision. But, you know, if you were to be later on in your life and you owe, you know, have a lot of financial and, and other personal commitments to other people, it becomes way more challenging. So I, I just say, if you can, uh, eliminate any of the sort of really key obligations to other people or to other, you know, financial institutions, then uh, if you believe, if you believe in it well enough, I mean, it's one of those things that um, I, I'd recommend every time to at least give it a shot and, and peel back the layers and see how much you can de-risk it uh, before letting an opportunity or an idea go because of, you know, the opportunity cost of not doing something else that might seem safer. But I think that's, that's a, it's a key thing, kind of like minimize your response minimize your responsibilities really and then and then really what are you risking other than some time but um right, right. yeah which the upside is quite quite large if it works out but we've kind of referenced a number of times surrounding yourself with people who are better than you so for both of the companies that you founded which are different in many ways what were the key people you needed to have on the team to effectively build both of them it's like a um, yeah, yeah. I, I, i'll use sonovex as the example because it, it required such deep expertise in a variety of domains and was, um, you know, in retrospect, way more uh, fascinating that we were actually able to, to get all those skill sets together in the, in the time that we did, you know, for, for developing this technology, which has this implantable component, this medical imaging component, this, um, you know, highly in a highly regulated environment that requires, you know, significant capital in order to get to a point where you can actually commercialize the technology. It was, um, you know, required deep surgical knowledge of, of what exactly these surgeries entailed, what the big rate limiting step was, what the, all the considerations were for the patient, the, you know, the, the hospital, the economic factors associated with these surgeries. Um, in order to make the technology work, we needed to really understand bioabsorbable uh, polymers. We needed to understand how we were going to, you know, 
constru uh, construct this polymer in a way that would be uh, highly visible under ultrasound, we needed to figure out a whole series of algorithms that would enable automated detection of this implant and then do automated interpretation of medical images to give physiologically relevant information to inexpert users. So we had to have skill sets across a variety of scientific domains, uh, clinical domains, and business domains it, all in the room hashing through these different early stage concepts to get to a point where we felt like we had a solution that was going to check the boxes uh, across all of those domains and having people who really have a deep expertise in, in those types of areas tend to be um, very busy, uh, that are highly compensated and getting uh, any serious mind share from them is, is not easy. So, you know, looking back on it, the fact that we were able to get uh, a handful of experts in those relevant domains to really spend a lot of time to make this, you know, make this happen and pull it off was, you know, a, a small miracle in my opinion. And, and that was integral to getting the idea off the ground and into what has now become Sonovex. What were some of the big hurdles you had to go through? You, you kind of talked about some of them, but from from where you were to where you are now and where you, you want to go to get to those big milestones, like what are, what were what were and what are the hurdles that you, you've needed to go through? I mean, the, the, the first hurdle when you have this idea and you have some people interested in it is how do you get the funding necessary to, you know, convert that idea into a physical object that is functional. Um, so, you know, there are all these researchers at all these institutions and, and perhaps even individually that have great ideas that are going to require a lot of money to save the world or save lives or all of these pie in the sky type of ideas and how you separate yourself from the rest and show investors or granting agencies that, you know, not only is your technology superior, but your team has what it takes to, um, you know, make those odds from, you know, one in a hundred or one in a thousand to uh, a high likelihood of success is not trivial and, and gaining that traction and making sure that there are no missteps in the early days is, uh, you know, you know, I'd say some of it was uh, good fortune. Some of it was a lot of hard work and some of it was doing, um, you know, all of the dis different research and pursuing all the different possible opportunities we had so that we could maximize our chances of getting to that next stage. I mean, early on we had, issues with, you know, anything from, you know, manufacturing to hiring people to getting, um, you know, another manufacturing organization to even take our business because our, our small scale, um, you know, plenty of technical challenges in terms of how you, you know, really can make this system fully automated. There were all of these different issues that really confounded on one another. And, um, you know, you needed a lot of money to get to the next stage and you needed people to do the work to get to the next stage. And when you're, um, you know, a, a very, very small organization with very few financial and, and human resources, uh, it becomes very challenging to get to those next um, next stages to sort of de-risk your whole approach and gain confidence uh, from the community that what you're doing is really important and going to be impactful. Um, so I, I just say that it's, it's essential to not give up and to pursue uh, a lot of areas and you're going to inevitably hear no from a lot of people, whether it's investors or granting agencies or um, whomever. And, you know, no doesn't mean that what you're doing is not important. It just means that that organization or that individual doesn't see the value at that time. It's too early or it's too late or it's not big enough or it's not what they're looking for. And um, there's always going to be, if, if what you're doing is truly important, there's always going to be some organization or individual that is going to see your vision and, you know, be that essential support to get you to that next step. So it's, you just got to be relentless and you can't give up if you get some initial people that 
don't understand what you're doing or don't want to support you or may not have an interest in the specific domain that you're focused on. Also, I, I think it's important to like hear what they're confused about because then it can help you refine your pitch. You know, if you keep hearing people are like, you know, what is this, a box that does something with something? And it's like, they're not getting something. And that, like, it's almost like they're telling you what you need to resolve so they can better help you. So I think that's, that's one yeah. of the things that, yeah, maybe you would echo that point as well, I think. Yeah, definitely. I think there, there are two main points and you, you hit on one of them, which is, you know, you really have to know your audience and you go out to the public for, to tell people if you go out to a, um, an investor, you, you can't talk to them with highly scientific or technical jargon. You got to, you know, talk in business terms. You got to really dumb it down. You got to say, listen, we have a box that does X. You know, let's not talk about how it does X or why it does X, but it does X and the value of X is Y and, you know, the potential economic earnings associated with X that does Y is Z. And if that's you know, interesting to you, then let's talk further. Whereas are pitching this to a, you know, a granting agency like the National Science Foundation, you know, making sure that you have all of those technical specifications in a, in a detailed manner lined up in a way that are going to really pass any sort of expert technical scrutiny is more important than showing that there's uh, a huge profit margin at the end of the day. So uh, being very cognizant of where all, your audience is coming from is, is essential. And then uh, understanding that not everybody that you talk to is going to be interested in um, your specific domain. You know, right now it's, it's breezy to get people interested in um, IT startups or blockchain or whatever it may be, but, you know, not every investor is going to be interested in a regulated industry like medical devices. And, and that's okay. But making sure that you spend your resources and time focused on the people that do play in your uh, sector is absolutely essential and, and um, not only to save time, but also to sort of make sure that you um, can stay optimistic about what you're doing and not hear no um, when you know, in unnecessary, at an unnecessary frequency when you can better target uh, your audiences and save time and effort. Just a quick jump back. How, when I asked you about the team question, how many people did you need? Like, at, like number wise, like five, 10, three, you know? Well, it, it changes at every stage, right? So, I mean, initially, to really make sure that we felt comfortable that we were going to be able to pull this off, we needed three. Um, once we got, you know, a layer deeper, we realized that in order to really prove, you know, all of the, the use cases and everything, you know, we, we needed five. And, you know, now we, we need, you know, 10. And it, and it will continue to grow depending on what you're trying to accomplish. So um, there's there's sort of an ever-growing experience of learning new things and, and understanding what you need to be able to you know, as you spend more time focusing on one area, you learn more and when you have to then dedicate more resources that it's not just, you know, figuring out how to make that first prototype, but it's, you know, scaling that from prototype to manufacturing and doing all the testing necessary for regulatory clearances. And you need to prepare all that documentation and the skill set that you need to really take it from, you know, idea all the way to commercial product is such a, requires such a diverse uh, array of skills that you end up needing, um, a whole bunch of people. I mean, we, just because we have 10 people, you know, in the office doesn't mean that we don't rely on dozens of people, whether they're lawyers or consultants or part-time employees to do various aspects of what we're doing. I mean, our, our technology has become very complex and requires a lot of um, unique skill sets along the way. And, and it's uh, not something that one person can do on their own. So I think one thing that a lot of people struggle with is uh, delegating or sharing or letting other people sort of take pieces of, of the technology or, or organization's direction. But, um, it, it, you know, one person only do so much. So making sure that you really do get other people to support that initiative and, and that they have um, complementary skills is absolutely essential to make making sure that A, you can accomplish your goals, but B, that you have 
the appropriate diverse perspectives necessary to ensure that you don't miss the mark. Mm. It was a very thoughtful answer, uh, which I, it's what we should come to expect from you. About, and this is like a, maybe a nerdy thing, but how long would it take or will it take you to get to like ramen profitability, for instance? Um, you know, it, it is conceivable that that will happen within two years from now. Uh, there are a lot of factors at play. You know, it depends on how much we invest in, you know, additional R&D for our pipeline technologies. It depends on how quickly we want to scale our sales operation. Um, there are uh, plenty of unknowns at this point that will make it challenging to answer that question um, accurately. But if we wanted to get to profit, if our goal is to get to profitability uh, as soon as possible, it, it could be done with two years. Is that what would you say your big goal is? Yeah. So, I mean, my, my big goal and the reason I started this company was that I, I wanted to, there were, there were two things. One, I, I'd say it's really three things. One, I wanted to create something new that was going to help people. Uh, two, I wanted that um, initiative to be something that ultimately made an impact on a lot of people and not just, you know, a handful. And then the third is I wanted the initiative to be considered a success by all of the common metrics that you would expect to see. So to elaborate, I mean, the first two are pretty clear cut, but um, if you were to evaluate uh, an entrepreneur, you know, most people will look to see, okay, well, were they able to A, make money for their investors and, and B, come to um, an exit? You know, were they able to take this to a point where it was um, scooped up by another organization or got to an IPO or some sort of liquidity event? which in most circumstances enables even further scalability of the concept, technology, device, whatever you want to call it. Um, so what, what is important in order to make that, you know, a larger organization like a Medtronic, for example, take this technology and put it in the bag of all of their thousands of sales reps across the country to really get uh, the most impact for the technology, you need to show um, not necessarily profitability, but you need to show the breadth of technology that you're able to provide, you need to be able to show the, the revenue growth. Um, and, and in order to show those two things, uh, you know, operating at a loss is often the fastest way to get there. So if you look at most companies when they get acquired, I mean, it's very, I wouldn't say it's very uncommon, but it is, it is not rare at all for companies to never be profitable before they ultimately are acquired and then integrated into larger businesses to make their effect um, even greater than what they would be able to do alone. Uh, if you're talking about, you know, a mom and pop's business where you're a dry cleaner, for example, and you have one store, I mean, the, the goal is to make sure that there's enough left over to, you know, pay the owners and, and make sure the business is sustainable. But in, um, you know, the medical device and pharmaceutical and diagnostic businesses, and even in a lot of pure tech businesses now, um, you want to inject as much capital as you need to make sure that you can grow at the rate necessary to make this organization attractive for a larger entity to either partner with you or to, uh, integrate your technology into their existing sales and marketing infrastructure. Using what you built as an example, what were the, the big areas you've had to, like what have you had to done do to get to this point? And then after that, maybe what's the next couple of steps? Like what are, yeah, because like I'm very new to it. So like this will be good for the listeners who are like, medical device development, what's that? <laughs> but Yeah, well, at, at a high level, sort of the, the way it works is that there's, so you have an idea, right? You, you figure out, okay, well, what is, what is this clinical unmet need that is worth solving? Uh, and then, you know, if you're lucky, you find some sort of solution that meets that or satisfies that unmet need. Um, so unlike in, in most industries where, you know, you, you develop a product and then you just start selling it, there are a lot of other 
considerations in the medical device arena that make the, the business unique, um, sometimes very frustrating, but in my opinion, uh, the most exciting. So what I mean by that is, you know, you go from, you know, idea to prototype, which is very similar in most industries, but then you have to then determine what your regulatory path would. So there are a variety of different um, ways in which you can get a technology through the FDA. And this, you know, can be, you know, this is based off of the risk profile of the technology. So for example, you're not going to do the same amount of testing for a Band-Aid as you are for a pacemaker or a stent. So there are a variety of different mechanisms through which you can have your technology reviewed by FDA. Um, so really researching based off of how your technology works, how the FDA will perceive that and ultimately review that technology is integral into understanding not only how much money you have to raise, but the testing you need to perform uh, and the type of evidence that you need to accrue to be able to ensure that that device will ever be legally marketable or something that you can sell. So that is that is sort of usually the primary um, consideration when most sort of engineers are looking at how you get the product to the next stage. But the other very important things to consider is, well, what is the clinical evidence necessary to really make a difference in you know the OR or in the clinic or wherever your technology will be used? So understanding what, what, what's that unmet need and what is the delta that you need to show for this technology to really make a big difference. So how do you design that study? What do you have to compare it against? What are these surgeons looking for to say, yes, this is making a difference and this is really improving care for my patient. So that clinical piece is incredibly important. Another incredibly important thing now, and it's been even more important in the last couple of years is, well, what is the economic implication for the payer or whoever is financially going to be involved with this transaction? So whether it's the hospital, an insurance company, patient, provider, or a combination thereof, what is their economic incentive to use this technology? How is it going to reduce costs? How is it going to make them more profitable? How is it going to um, alleviate unnecessary treatment? Whatever it may be, um, nowadays, if there is not an economic component that really shows value as it relates to cash, not strictly clinical benefit, it is very challenging to get off the ground because of all of the pricing pressures that have been um, brought to light based off of reimbursements and, you know, shrinking margins at hospitals and the, you know, reduced amount of time that, that physicians have with each patient, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so basically the, what, what originally starts off as an engineering project becomes a multidisciplinary uh, exercise to determine what is the, <laughs> how do I prove technically that it's working the way it should? How do I prove, prove clinically that working the way it, it should actually makes a big impact for the patient? How do I show uh, the FDA that it working in that environment is not risky for the patient? And then how do I show that there's new economic impact that is created by using this technology? So um, it becomes very exciting and, and it's one of, those, uh, one of those fields that really requires a lot of perspective to make sure that what you're doing is going to ultimately be a success. So it's uh, a lot of extra layers of complexity, but it, it makes... Um, it makes the game a lot more fun, and in my opinion, uh, requires a, a lot of interdisciplinary thinking, which uh, really excites me on a day-to-day. I'm thinking you, you like at, at any of these steps. I, I take it you're more on the extreme side with you know like stents versus the band-aid side, just you know taking a guess. But then I also think that you probably wouldn't reinvent the wheel, so to speak. So is there were there resources that you pulled on in developing your technology at those different stages? that were key into helping you like convert over to the next stage? Yeah. I mean, it'll be tough to describe in an efficient way, but there are, 
I mean, all the finding resources and, and determining how those resources can be used to get to your next milestone or goal are, are absolutely imperative. I mean, every idea comes from some combination of past experiences or things that you've read or seen to lead you to that idea. You know, you don't, you don't come up with these ideas in a vacuum. So you're absolutely right that there are, uh, there were technologies or, or scientific principles from other fields that we were able to apply in a new way. Uh, in a new embodiment with a new type of technology for a new application that, that ultimately has enabled us to do what, what we're doing now. Um, so it's, uh, and, and that is, that, that's sort of the, the technical lens to it. But in order to figure out the regulatory lens, I mean, I, uh, no joke, went through every single technology uh, that was ever cleared in the last 20 years at the FDA with the same product code as ours to figure out all of the different uh, technologies that were cleared through the same division at the FDA and what their rationales were and what the te technological similarities and differences were with our technology, what tests were performed. So I had a good understanding of, okay, well, this is the precedence that's been established in the industry. And this is why I believe that we should be able to accomplish our goals with this uh, array of tests. And here's the evidence to support that. And that ultimately ended up paying off very well when we had our interactions with FDA and were able to reference their past decisions. So, um, you know, leveraging existing resources that are publicly available to accomplish your goals is imperative to uh, efficiently accomplishing your goals. Mm -hmm. Would you be able to name a couple of resources? I know it's like kind of a, like, what's your favorite book situation? So you might not be able yeah, to. Uh, no, hundred percent. I mean, there are, <clears throat> So, I mean, what I, what I used for, from a regulatory standpoint, um, the FDA 510K database, it will very nicely organize every product that has been FDA cleared um, through the 510K pathway. It will organize it by product code, manufacturer, device name. You can read the summary statements. You can get a really strong um, amount of information about these products and, and understand how your technology fits into the mix. Um, there is a lot of uh, clinical research that's available, you know, through PubMed to understand, you know, what these technologies have been able to show clinically uh, and perhaps what type of testing has already been performed, whether it be in animal models, benchtop models, or clinical models um, to see sort of what that burden of evidence looks like. Um, looking through, you know, Google patents or the USPTO website to figure out what the intellectual property landscape looks like is absolutely essential. So you can not only figure out, okay, well, when this technology was used in this other application, you know, what were the key elements to it? But, okay, now that I'm trying to patent my technology with this new application, what else exists? You know, what, what does the landscape look like? Is there freedom to operate here? Is it worth trying to patent this new concept or is it a crowded space? Um, so those are all, you know, very essential resources uh, at an early stage and then understanding things like procedure volumes and adverse events. Uh, you know, the MOD database through FDA gives you a clear sense for where there have been adverse events reported with technologies that may be, you know, your competition and understanding what has limited their success um, is, is absolutely imperative to make sure that you don't fall into that same trap. Um, so, you know, the, the amount of resources, I mean, the more you dig in, the more you find, but there are um, you know, from a regulatory standpoint, those are definitely the best places to start. Excellent. I have, I'm going to be honest, I have not checked those out myself, so I'm going to do that later tonight um, because I'm a nerd All and right. I like learning. <laughs> but, <laughs> so the, the fun question is, because I'm doing a series on longevity, if you could give three people who aren't you or any and your loved ones, like no cheating, um, longevity, as in the sense that like if it was like Einstein and you gave him this, he'd be alive today and he'd be still researching to anyone either past or present. 
and you could pick three people to basically have like the re- rejuvenation thing and kind of live for an undef- you know basically until someone hits one of the rock so like who who would be the three people you'd want to save or preserve in this way oh that, that's that's a tough one okay so you know you already mentioned it early on i i do think that elon musk definitely deserves to live longer than the uh the average joe just to you know see what other crazy ideas he can come up with and pull off i think that bob fischel he's a local medical device innovator in the in the baltimore maryland area uh, has developed a, an array of very impressive uh concepts and is honestly still cracking i don't know how old he i think he's almost 90 now still coming up with new concepts in his garage um that that has been sort of an inspiration to me uh, over the years, and um, you know, honestly, I'll I'll say my my business partner. I mean, uh, Dr. Kuhn, he has been uh, not only an inspiration but full of incredibly brilliant ideas, and um, you know, I, I'd love to see his you know continued sort of uh, innovative mind go on for forever. So if I had to pick a top three on the spot, I think those would be them. Those are really good ones too. Everyone besides Elon Musk, I did not know. So I get to, to kind of learn more about them later. All right, but then are there good ways for people to follow along with your development? I don't know how prevalent you are in social media. I, I do know you have a nice website. Yeah. So, I mean, we, um, you know, I, my personal and, and company social media accounts uh, are my name and the company's name. So, you know, at Sonovex for, uh, I'd say LinkedIn, um, Facebook and, and Instagram are probably, and, and Twitter are probably the best uh, ways to track us. Um, and you know, we'll be actually unveiling a new website, uh, in the next couple of weeks, which should be exciting just to highlight some of the new things that we're doing and share some more about what's, what's coming in the future. If for, for people who are, who are thinking of following along, what would be the next big thing other than, you know, a neat new website, what would be the the next big thing they would expect to come out? Like, uh, the next big hurdle, like August 17th, you have to do this or whatever. So we're, we're going to be publishing some clinical literature in the next couple months, uh, and we are going to expect a new regulatory clearance for our next product uh, by the end of the year. So I, I'd say those are the two big things to look out for in the, in the next couple months. And that was David Nero, CEO of Sonovex, involved in so many different areas. We got into a lot of his thoughts, and I think this is something that will be very helpful for people wanting to get started out, and you want to see what it takes to be a Forbes 30 under 30. I mean, in a lot of ways, he's a very smart individual. And in a lot of other ways, he's just like you and me, you know, just listening in, you know, a regular person who worked really, really hard to get where he was. And I think that's very interesting. Write to me if you like this and let me know what you think. Other than that, I want to inform people before we go that there is a new way to show support for the podcast and to keep it advertisement free from now until forever, which is called Patreon. If you go to Patreon and look for Learning with Lowell, you'll see this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at Lowell this year, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends, please and thank you.